The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled New Rules for VOD SOS Modern Risk Assessment, Diagnostic Principles, and Innovative Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash CUN860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Mohamed Moti from the Sorbonne University and St. Antoine Hospital in Paris in France, and it is my great pleasure and honor uh, to be with you today and to welcome you to this uh, symposium entitled New Rules for uh, VOD SOS, Modern Risk Assessment, Diagnostic Principles, and Innovative uh, Treatment. I'm joined today by a distinguished top expert colleague from the Dana-Farber, namely Dr. Christine Duncan. So the problem, as you could see, uh, my friend, is that uh, a VOD, although some people would say is relatively rare, it is important to recognize this complication. It can go up to 20% in patients, especially some uh, genetic or inherited disorders in children. And if you have a VOD with multi-organ dysfunction or multi-organ failure without a treatment, the mortality is, has been always reported above 80%. And obviously, uh, these guys unfortunately die of multi-organ failure. So sometimes you underdiagnose this VOD because you tick the box, multi-organ failure. And the pathophysiology is quite complex, complicated. It's a multi-step process leading to this uh, sinusoidal narrowing and blockage inflammation, the loss of the skeletal architecture and alteration of the coagulation uh, pathways. So you can appreciate that uh, we have uh, endothelial damage, it's an injury of the endothelial cells, and then you have the sinusoidal narrowing, clot formation, the prothrombotic changes, and that would lead to the clinical symptoms, and if uh, nothing is done to stop this vicious circle, uh, patients would end up with multi-organ dysfunction and they would die. So it's a sort of a, a potentially fatal cascade that you need to break at some point. And that's exactly what we have observed and published a couple of years ago from the EBMT registry is about a significant proportion of these so-called multi-organ failures, cause of death, Actually, if you dig deeper into the cases, the trigger is VOD. So this is why uh, vigilance and uh, early recognition of VOD is important. With this, I'd like to hand the microphone to Dr. Duncan, who would uh, share with you her thoughts about the rules for effective risk assessment and VOD diagnosis. Kristen. Uh, thank you for joining us in this session. For the next little bit, we want to discuss two cases of patients. We're going to dive into detail about both of these patients, and these are examples of real-life life patients. We've heard a little bit about the second one. 
So focusing on pediatrics, this is a three-year-old girl who has transfusion-dependent beta thalassemia and began chronic blood transfusions at age four months. She had developed iron overload and became, began chelation around age two years. And then prior to her admission for a planned transplant, had a ferritin level of 1,500 and a liver iron concentration of 3.9. She was planned to receive a match-related donor transplant conditioned with myeloablative, bucelfan, cyclophosphamide, and ATG. And Dr. Modi already um, indicated a little bit about our second case, the 22-year-old patient with, uh, neg- um, who received inotuzumab. So as we go through this, we ask you to think about what these individual patients' risk factors are for VOD. And if those risk factors are elevated up front, should you consider prophylaxis? So in this slide, we've highlighted modifiable risk factors for VOD. And modifiable, of course, is in quotations because some of these things are difficult to change if you're trying to give the best disease-directed care to your patient. And so we think about those things like allogeneic transplant, receiving a second transplant, myeloblative regimens, the donor match, the use of bucelfan or total body radiation, and the type of graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis that's used. And so here we list some of the unmodifiable risk factors, or those that are less easily changed. And so you can read through that list, looking at the increased recipient age in some cases, though pediatric patients are a slightly different story, patients who have elevated ferritin coming in, prior liver disease, um, thalassemia, CML, or inefficiency, as was the case in one of our patients, use of um, PN, parental nutrition, certain genetic polymorphisms, which we're still, um, still trying to understand best how to appreciate and to react to, patients who have sepsis, or, um, in my world, pediatric-specific conditions, so diseases like osteopetrosis or rare inherited diseases, or neuroblastoma, and many others. Stronger risk factors, so those increase your risk by over 10 times, are things like having a bilirubin elevated before you came in, but also anti- antibody drug conjugates, so prior gemtuzumab or inotuzumab. And so what we encourage you to do is to think about those risk factors for your patients and plan, a, plan accordingly, if possible. And so to look a little bit more deeply at the anti, antibody drug conjugate therapy, so talking about inotuzumab um, in this particular case, we're presenting the work of the largest single-center retrospective study of relapsed refractory ALL patients who received inotuzumab as salvage therapy. And this is 47 patients. In this case, we see that the high, there is a high incidence of SOS or VOD, so 26% in this patient population, although the prompt initiation of defibrotide was effective post-diagnosis. In the SOS group, the 100-day mortality was 33.3%. So for a high-risk population, um, reasonable approach, depending on how you look at these things. There are some interesting additional insights that came from this data. And what we've highlighted here is not just that it's not just about the inotuzumab, it's not just about the bucelfan, but to think about other things. So in this particular case, they highlighted serolimus as graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis. And you can see from this data, uh, there's a statistically significant risk when you've added serolimus to, um, to the regimen. So in these patients, it's probably worth, at least this data would suggest, thinking about your choice of graft-versus-host disease in relation to prior therapies. And now I think we're going to dive into prophylaxis, which has been much debated and discussed in recent years. So I want to start with some of the most compelling and I think supportive data for the use of defibrotide prophylaxis. And this comes from the EBMT randomized trial in pediatric patients. And so in this trial, there were 356 patients, 65% allo and 31% auto, so reflecting um, a common or expected pediatric population 
with a median age of 6.6 years. In this case, these patients were randomized to receive defibrotide or to receive control therapy. We can see in the defibrotide group that there was a, there was a lower incidence of VOD, 12 versus 20%, and VOD with renal failure, a significant difference of 1% versus 6%. Um, mortality rates were not significant in patients with severe uh, AEs were not significant. Interestingly, there is also a lower incidence of GVHD in this population, perhaps ref reflecting endothelial injury that is common in both of these syndromes. And in this, uh, sorry, um, and here we're looking at a really interesting manuscript. And if you look at the slides, I think it's worth diving into this deeper in your time to look at the incidence of VOD and SOS in patients who received defibrotide prophylaxis. And so this is a combination of studies that were performed, each having a control and a defibrotide arm. And so just to orient you to this slide a little bit, falling um, on this side means that these studies favored prophylaxis with defibrotide versus the control. So taking the preponderance of the data from these studies, combining it, we see that the incidence of VOD was 16% in the control populations who did not receive defibrotide prophylaxis compared to 5% in the ones that did. So the risk, for, the risk ratio for developing VOD SOS with defibrotide prophylaxis in the control was 0.3. And then I think probably what many of you are thinking about is what about the trial that was performed most recently? What about the data that we heard uh, from Dr. Grupp and Ash in 2021? So this is the phase three defibrotide versus best standard of care trial in the prevention of hepatic VOD. And you can see that these data look different. And so in this study, the primary endpoint is the estimated VOD-free survival by day 30 post-transplant. And the orange lines are the patients who receive best standard of care, and in the dark blue, those who receive defibrotide. There's no significant difference in those populations at day 30, and additionally, there's no difference in those populations at day 100. And so I think when we try to reconcile these differences in whether defibrotide should be used for our individual patients, obviously you need to know the data, but also to look at it all critically. And so there was no difference in these outcomes, but why was that? Were there explanations we can think about? So the first thing to know is that this trial was conducted many years after the original prophylaxis trial. And so perhaps practices had changed. Um, some toxicities had decreased using triosulfan and other therapies compared to using, for example, busulfan. Another challenge in evaluating this data is that the trial included, this trial, the phase three, included both pediatric and adult patients. Whereas the pediatric prophylaxis studies showed significance, the combined pro protocol didn't. And the adult incidence is generally lower than it's compared to children, and perhaps the inclusion of adults in this trial diluted the, the incidence and perhaps made it more complicated, or I think made it more complicated for us to understand the utility of defibrotide in pediatric-specific patients. And so the bottom line of all of this, the sample size calculation wasn't enough, so it was insufficient to re reproduce the pediatric trial. So I think we're all trying, this leaves um, with many questions as well as some answers. So again, with my pediatric bias, I want to focus a little bit on uh, the recipients, pediatric recipients who are non-malignant. And this is an abstract that's going to be presented tomorrow, so I encourage you uh, to, to join this abstract and listen to the presentation. So this was the use of defibrotide and prophylaxis for patients who had pediatric patients who had high-risk sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia major, aged 2 through 35 years old. All of the patients in this study received a myeloablative haploidentical transplant with CD34 selection and CD3 addback. They received defibrotide standard dosings from day minus 10 through day 21 following transplant. 
In this study, we're looking at tolerability. So what they were able to show is that most patients received a median number of doses of 126, so received many of the doses. There were no serious adverse events related to, um, directly to bleeding events, I should say, related to defibrotide, and none of the patients developed SOS. So clearly there's more data that needs to be learned. This is a smaller sample size, but I think interesting data. So what these results suggested to the authors is that defibrotide is well tolerated in the child and AYA populations with high risk sickle cell disease or beta thalassemia following this particular regimen. So getting back to our case, we answer those questions. So both of these patients were at risk for VOD and so for different reasons. So in the pediatric patient with thalassemia, their, their diagnosis of thalassemia itself put them at higher risk. Their existence of pre prior liver disease, likely due to iron overload, also increased that risk, and a marker of that, their high ferritin levels. So when we look at risk factors, we tend to think of ferritin greater than 1,000 being an issue, and in this case, it was 1,500. And for our 22-year-old patient, and Dr. Modi will discuss this patient in more detail, the use of inotuzumab prior to therapy greatly increased the risk of post-transplant VOD. So now just to dive a little bit more into that pediatric patient and what happened. And so in this child, from day 15 through day plus 18, she developed increased abdominal pain, a positive fluid balance, and weight gain from 18 to 19 kilograms. And so for the adult practitioners in the room, that may not seem that much, but 18 to 19 kilograms is a 5% weight difference in some of this age group, which highlights some of the challenges we have using adult-based criteria in pediatric patients. On day plus 19, the patient had an ultrasound because the team was thinking about VOD, and that showed gallbladder sludge, but normal thalovenous flow. The patient had building room elevation on the same day as that ultrasound, so that ultra is going from a baseline of 0.5 to 1.2. And starting in this period of time, we noticed that the patient was receiving more transfusions than expected. And so it's very common at this point post-transplant to need daily platelet transfusions, but she was natoring lower than she had previously, with naters down to 5 or 11. So I think what this highlights to me, or this slide, or this case, is that there are some things that we've learned about VOD in the modern era that may make it, um, that made it important for us to really think about the criteria indifferently. So as a review, the clinical biochemical signals of VOD, you can see the signs and symptoms. So classic right upper quadrant pain, hepatomegaly, weight gain, and ascites. And just as an aside, I think physical examination is not a lost art, and examining the patient and trying to find the right upper quadrant pain is incredibly valuable, especially in pediatric patients. Jaundice shortens the breath, tachypnea, and decreased urine output. The laboratory values you can see um, listed on the side. And so to talk about the differences between pediatric and adult patients, and this came from the EBMT work as well. So when we look at children, it's, I, VOD is described with an incidence of approximately 20%, but in some high-risk populations, it can be as high as 60%. And these are typically the non-malignant and rare pediatric disorders. This is contrasted with 10% in the adult population. Children tend to have increased or additional risk factors to those typically found in adults, including those unique to infants, and there's an abstract being presented um, at this meeting as well by Mickey Nishitani, so please feel free to look that up as well. Um, and with these genetic diseases, as I've mentioned, being higher than expected. The clinical presentation, I think this is one of the big advances that we've seen, uh, particularly with the EBMT criteria, is the acknowledgement of late onset VOD that's happening as many as 20% of patients, so happening after day 20 or 21, the presence of anecteric VOD in approximately 30% of patients, and the existence of hyperbilirubinemia, which may manifest differently in children. 
When thinking about the need for the management of ascites and hepatomegaly, we think about the high instance of disease-related hepatomegaly in patients, pediatric patients, including those with um, HLH and other diseases. And treatment, defibrotide for severe VOD and with multi-organ dysfunction or multi-organ failure has been associated with better outcomes than in adult patients. So the children may get quite sick, but their outcomes with treatment uh, tend to be superior compared to adult patients. And prevention, as we've discussed, defibrotide has demonstrated efficacy in the prevention of VOD SOS in children. Um, so we won't spend much time on the classic criteria. I think you can take a look at these, but just to highlight the challenges, for both criteria, there was a time limit to 21 or 21 days, specific bilirubin criteria, and then um, for pediatrics in particular, I just want to highlight the challenges of a weight gain of 2%. So in our, 3%, our three-year-old patient, if you had a, you know, a soda or a can sitting on all these tables, that's about the amount of fluid you would have to gain in a three-year-old to meet these criteria. It's not very much. So what you're drinking during this session would make someone who's a pediatric patient in the three-year-old age range meet criteria for VOD. So in those limitations, as I've mentioned, they go up to day plus 21. They require hyperbilirubinemia, which is not acknowledged the existence of anecteric VOD. They don't capture the recent clinical descriptions of disease or newer imaging capabilities, such as ultrasound or elastography, and they do not capture pediatric-specific features. And so we see the publication here uh, in 2018 and 2016 of the EBMT criteria that attempted to explain or to address these limitations. So for the pediatric criteria of note, there is no, no limitation in time. You can have VOD diagnosed at day 25, you can have diagnosed at day 14. There's no specific time limitation. Just to highlight the differences, we, the EBMT criteria address the unexplained consumption and transfusion of refractory thrombocytopenia, and try to get some more nuance around the weight gain to address the issues of small children. So otherwise, unexplained weight gain on three consecutive days despite use of diuretics, or a weight gain above 5% of the baseline. And on the adult side, we see some of the refinements as well, acknowledging the late onset of VOD and classical SOS VOD. And additionally, these revised, there are revised criteria that came from Mitch Cairo and his group in the US, uh, looking at the limitations of prior, prior uh, criteria. So in these, just highlighting the differences, we see the unexpected weight gain addressed again, in the excessive platelet transfusion. These criteria, different from the others, also include things that we all use all of the time. So an ultrasound, and I have to say that many times that I talk to my, my colleagues, my trainees, people I work with, and explain that ultrasound is not required for the, dose of VOD, for the diagnosis of VOD is tremendous. I think we all rely on that, but it's not actually required. And in some cases, reversal of flow is, tends to be a late finding, so you can't rely on finding just reversal of flow on an ultrasound. But it's important to be considered because we all use it. Or, looking at hepatic VOD biopsies, we don't biopsy much at my center. I don't think that many centers do. But if you have a hepatic biopsy that shows you VOD, obviously you don't need to meet any of those findings. Or unexplained elevated portal venous wedge pressure. So just to finish our, our patient, um, our pediatric patient. So this patient started defibrotad on day 19. Her ultrasound did not show reversal of flow, but she met criteria and clinical, um, the clinical team felt that it was necessary to treat her. On day 20, so after this, she had another ultrasound which did show reversal of flow. So another key point is that these pre the presentation can change. So having a normal ultrasound on one day or just gallbladder sludge or some dampening of flow doesn't mean you don't have VOD. So I would encourage you to continue to assess if you have clinical consideration. Her ascites progressed, 
and her urine output decreased, likely because of decreased intravascular volume, as well as potential abdominal compartment syndrome. So in children, their bellies can get so big that you actually uh, compress their ureters and have decreased urinary output. The patient developed oxygen desaturation due to bilateral pleural effusions and pulmonary edema on a chest X-ray. She had peritoneal drains placed and a chest tube drainage as well. Our center tends to be very proactive about drain placements, particularly in young children where there's such abdominal and pulmonary competition. She then got the best diet supportive care we could give with aggressive diuresis and supportive measures, including nutritional support, fluid management, preferably giving colloid rather than crystalloid, protective medication management. And by that, I mean at our center, if someone has VOD and their billies are going up, we check their calcium urine levels every day because they are not clearing it, or thinking about their mental status because they may not be clearing their pain meds or their anti-nausea medications, and of course, providing sufficient pain control. So this child had a total peak bilirubin at nine, of 9.5, nine days after her initial symptoms, and she returned to her baseline 30 days later. Uh, her peritoneal drain remained in place for 10 days, and that's always a conversation about when to take it out and how you decide that. I guess a conversation for another day. Uh, the chest tube was only in place for three days, and she was discharged from the hospital 30, at day 35 without ongoing hepatic or renal sequelae. So I think in this case, providing great supportive care and trying to manage her early was likely beneficial in this patient. And now I'm going to turn this back over to Professor Modi um, for the rest of our conversation. Thank you very much, Christine, for a lovely talk, and congratulations to all of you. I think you've been following carefully. Okay, so how to apply the rules for severity grading and VOD uh, treatment? And the key word is about timely initiation of therapy. So here I'm back to my 22-year-old uh, uh, patient uh, with BALL who received inotuzumab. Uh, proceeded to allotransplant with high-dose cyclophosphamide, high-dose TBI, 12 gray. And unfortunately, this patient by day plus 10 has some weight increase, normal bilirubin, abdominal pain, increased transaminase, and alteration of kidney function. And the patient was receiving, of course, cyclosporin, a bit of antibiotics, and, you know, I think the whole story. So what are the next steps? How can we characterize the presence and suspect, or I would say, assess the severity of VOD? And I think Dr. Duncan convinced you, I think, about the limitations of the historical older grading systems because they do lack specific target organ uh, grading for toxicity. Definitions are quite vague when it comes to mild and moderate, and the severe grading actually uh, is a sort of a retrospective one because it depends on the resolution before day 100 or deaths. So this is why I think on both sides of the Atlantic there has been some uh, great work trying to refine uh, this uh, grading of severity. These are, for instance, the EBMT criteria for grading in adults. We do have the equivalent in pediatrics, of course, and hopefully we will ref slightly refine them uh, to make them easier to use in the next uh, few months. And you can appreciate that uh, 
we take into account not only bilirubin, but also transaminase, the weight increase, and the renal function, because we know very well that these are really uh, key uh, steps for the success of a transplant. Also, you can appreciate that you have five criteria. You can see mild, moderate, severe, very severe with multi-organ dysfunction, and obviously the fifth criteria is uh, death. So it's very important to recognize these features. And we do have roughly something similar uh, published by Dr. Cairo here from the U.S., where they also incorporated the multi-organ severity grading, which can overcome uh, these limitations uh, that we mentioned. And uh, this is exactly what happened in uh, my patient with the transaminase increase, uh, ALAT, AZAT, the weight gain, but also the kidney uh, dysfunction. And you end up, and I'm sure you've seen this slide several times before, with four grades. Actually, the EBMT and the CTCAE criteria, uh, the revised ones from published by Dr. Cairo, are roughly the same. And at the end of the day, it's more about the threshold, but I don't believe this is something uh, crucial or uh, would really uh, have uh, a negative impact on the way you handle VOD. What's really important is to take them into account, to take them into consideration, and bear in mind that in a patient having an increase in transaminase, alteration of kidney function, in addition to weight gain, even without a high bilirubin, well, obviously, you can suspect a, a VOD. And this is exactly uh, uh, that, uh, what was helpful in this case because the modern, the novel grading systems allow to inform uh, about the strong suspicion for a more severe uh, VOD uh, case. And obviously, once you have suspected uh, the severity and attempted to grade uh, the level of severity, what is the next step? Well, uh, when it comes to VOD, and you heard also uh, about this from Dr. Duncan, it's a teamwork. And it's not only about the physician or the nurses, but also you have all other healthcare professionals being involved, the pharmacist the critical uh, care clinicians, uh, psychological support, uh, pain and symptom management. So you can see it's a full orchestra uh, around the patient uh, who needs uh, to manage and allow the patient to get through this difficult condition. And the only approved treatment today for uh, severe VOD is uh, defibrotide, that should be initiated very early. It is FDA and EMA uh, approved and also approved uh, um, in many other countries across the globe, but we should also pay attention to the uh, supportive care, especially when it comes to the balance of uh, fluids uh, um, and uh, uh, hemofiltration if needed. 
And the approval of defibrotide came from this uh, paper published by Paul Richardson in Blood 2016. Uh, I don't need to spend a lot of hours to show you the difference between those patients with, I would say, even very severe VOD uh, compared to historical controls. Because in this complication, in this disease called VOD, uh, having a treatment uh, protocol against placebo obviously given the high mortality rate is not feasible from an ethical standpoint and that was the argument here for this registration trial. And we do have actually uh, similar results and defibrotide now is well known. Thousands of patients across the globe have received it. So as part of the TIND program here in the U.S., uh, you can appreciate uh, uh, the uh, additional evidence uh, we have about the efficacy of the drug, but also, most importantly, that uh, those patients without multi-organ dysfunction are going to do better. And this is a key message which highlights that we should not wait until multi-organ dysfunction uh, you have uh, uh, similar data, actually, in both pediatrics and uh, adults. And uh, uh, again, uh, avoiding multi-organ dysfunction and initiating the treatment quickly and very early. And I'm glad that you answered uh, uh, that this should be done within the uh, 24, 48 hours. This is exactly uh, what we should do. And I can share with you here the Defi France real-world data. This is a, a large registry of 750-plus patients treated in more than 50 transplant centers in France. And the paper is now uh, online uh, to be published soon. And you can see the relevance of, for instance, the EBMT criteria when you compare the outcome of those patients treated with defibrotide depending on the severity of the situation. And those patients with the most severe form, the very severe, are actually the patients who are going to, uh, to, in, to, to have the worst outcome. On the other hand, those patients with mild and moderate uh, VOD for whom you initiate early the treatment are actually going to do much uh, better. And uh, uh, tomorrow I'll be uh, presenting another analysis uh, where we have pulled together uh, the data from this uh, French registry called Defi France, but also a European database called EBMT Pass. Uh, this is after the approval of defibrotide in Europe and uh, both studies, uh, when you combine the data, are in favor of, first of all, they confirm the uh, accuracy and relevance of the severity grading and its importance, but also the need for early uh, initiation. And I'm more than happy to discuss tomorrow evening. We also uh, have an important feature that is becoming more and more recognized these days, and I do, uh, I would like to draw your attention kindly to these forms of anecteric VOD. And this is true in children, but we do have also cases 
in the adult population where we can see a true uh, VOD even sometimes confirmed by liver biopsy without increase of bilirubin. So this is extremely important and we are presenting some work about this uh, uh, tomorrow. So at the end of the day, it's about early initiation. So quick action if you want to stop this vicious circle of uh, VOD. Remember uh, this uh, uh, slide I presented in the introduction about this uh, procoagulation and clotting uh, process. And, well, I believe in this audience, I don't need to spend a lot of time to give you practical considerations on how to use uh, defibrotide. I think you are quite familiar with the dosage, uh, 6.25 milligram per kilo every uh, six uh, uh, hours. Uh, the uh, potential side effects are described here, but I think uh, we are quite familiar with the drug. What I would like to emphasize is the duration of treatment because I frequently would receive emails from colleagues here and there saying, well, the situation has improved after five days. Should we stop treatment? The short answer is no. I think uh, we should at least treat patients for 14 days. We usually do at least 21 days. Also, you should be aware of the fact that complete remission in 50% of the patient can only be achieved after more than uh, three weeks. So in this case, remember my 22-year-old gentleman uh, with BALL and the inotizumab story. So we immediately started uh, defibrotide within 24 hours. And interestingly, in the DEFI France, you know, the paper that I mentioned to be published, the median time to start defibrotide was zero, which means actually it was started within the next few hours after suspicion of the complication. We had a rapid uh, improvement, but as I mentioned, full resolution can take additional uh, time. We have a fantastic uh, audience. Thank you very much. And now, please don't hesitate to jump into the microphone and we would be more than happy uh, to start the discussion. Thank you very much. Excellent. Hello, go ahead. Nice I have to you. three questions. Oh boy. Uh, first, Christy, are you able to get uh, approval for defibrotide for prophylaxis? Well, you know, it's actually interesting because some of the questions that people sent on cards had that same question. I think the ability to get it is very dependent on your institution. Um, so my institution, we're not questioned. We use prophylaxis on patients who the providers deem are high risk, so based on some of those risk factors, but other populations sometimes for the neuroblastoma kids, sometimes for others. So we definitely use it at our center, but I know that that's not possible at every, every location. Then what is... Uh experience of uh, using tips or any kind of shunting? And the second question is, what do you do when defibrotide doesn't work? Great question. I have, I have to admit, I don't have experience using tips. We haven't used it in our patient population at Boston Children's, but I know that others have used it with some success. And some of the challenges are just how highly morbid the procedure can be in an already um, sick patient. Yeah, no, I can confirm what Christian said. The use of TIPS is really a historical one. Before the advent of uh, uh, defibrotide, 
I'm not aware, I can't remember in the last 15 years that we have ever uh, proposed a patient uh, for uh, TIPS. Uh, and what was the... Uh, what to do if Diferpatow is not oh, working. Oh, well, well. Oh, yeah, that's very difficult. Uh, prayer can work. No. Uh, and supportive care. Supportive care, because there's uh, nothing that is approved or uh, can work, unfortunately. I know there is one question that came from the audience that, well, that um, maybe asks that question as well. Is there, any is there any role currently for steroids as a VOD management option? Yeah, this is a recurrent question. You know, we transplanters, whenever we don't know what to do, we usually give steroids. And, and I, I, I'm sure everybody agrees. Uh, nevertheless, when it comes to VOD, uh, I think uh, if you look to the evidence-based data, I'm sure I can give you empirical cases. Everyone has cases where steroids did something miraculous. But if you put the data together in a meta-analysis, actually steroids are not useful. However, we have to acknowledge, and we didn't mention this in this presentation, in this session today, that VOD doesn't always come alone. VOD can overlap with acute GBHD, with a sepsis, with other complications. So you end up you know, having a sort of a cocktail of different treatments. But treating VOD alone with steroids hasn't been proven to be effective, and the only drug approved is defibrotoid. Thank you for a nice presentation. This is Surya Salvashan uh, from Children's Hospital of Michigan in Detroit. So um, I would like to emphasize, although both speakers mentioned very briefly how the sportive care uh, are conducted at their respective institutions, but there is, it is not standard. I mean, that's, we have to be very careful about it because uh, I know from first-hand experience that it is very, very variable what we call as a standard of sportive care. That's one comment. I have two questions. Um, one of them is the, at least in the United States, I don't know about Europe, but this medicine is approved for severe VOD patients. I know Dr. Moti mentioned and they raised the question to see that when should we start the defibrotide therapy. So do you have any information how commonly defibrotide is being used for mild and moderate cases in the United States because FDA did not approve this drug for mild and moderate cases. This is question one. Okay. It's an excellent question. I don't have data, but as you say, just like the supportive care, I think it is highly variable from center to center. I know that there are some centers, the one that I work that with, that we've used it for moderate cases, usually not for mild. Um, and I know that there are other centers that, even for severe cases, have to go through either multiple committees or other things or have harder access to the drug. So if that data exists, we can certainly try to find it. I just don't know it. Uh, what I can uh, tell you, well, in the uh, European, uh, in the French registry, the DEFI France, there were cases with mild and moderate VOD. Also, if you look to the semantic of the label, it's about severe. However, please don't forget that the label and the approval came before the publication of these severity grading. So we were talking about mainly exclusively the severe historical 
uh, grading. So this is important. So some of the moderate uh, today. And here I would say it's about clinical judgment because you know very well that VOD is not a black and white process. It's not you have VOD now and you don't have VOD tomorrow. You are accumulating all of these symptoms one after each others. And most of the time, actually, they don't come all together. So it's very difficult to uh, put together, you know, all the uh, cases. And this is where if you want to wait until you get and you tick all the boxes, you end up all the time with multi-organ dysfunction. So at least I'm not aware in Europe in general and in many countries across the globe that there is a big deal or big issue about whether, you know, what is the frontier when you start the fibrotide. I think everybody agrees that early initiation, as soon as you suspect the complication, is useful. And you can start it. And if you, 24 hours or 48 hours later, have an evidence, you have an evidence that this is not VOD, okay, you can stop it. I mean, we do this with antibiotics, with antifungals, and nobody blame you for this. So why it should be different for VOD? Uh, I have a little bit of a challenge there personally as a transplant physician of 20 years. But uh, I understand because, you know, one other question I have is, again, just to fact, uh, sort of, you know, put the facts uh, on the discussion phase, is that the study for high-risk neuroblastoma patients was discontinued. That study, randomized study, you guys know, in the past, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago, but that study was terminated, and it was in the public records for high-risk neuroblastoma mm -hmm. study uh, using defibrotide for prophylactic purposes for SOS. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I cannot comment on, this, on the study itself because I, uh, didn't, I'm an adult doctor. I didn't participate to it. Uh, however, what I would like to comment and take the question on a broader level, what you're asking is the issue of prophylaxis. We know today that the drug is not approved for prophylaxis, but we have a randomized phase three trial uh, from Dr. Corbasio Blue, published in The Lancet in 2012. This is in the children, yeah. clearly showing a benefit for prophylaxis. And the cases you are mentioning are within this protocol, within this uh, trial. They fit, I think, uh, within this trial. The controversy has come recently from the Harmony trial, which didn't show a benefit for prophylaxis. But I think Dr. Duncan uh, tried to provide explanations why we couldn't get a final answer. Because as you know, a negative or whatever, if you don't achieve your primary endpoint, it doesn't mean that uh, everything is wrong and you should stop doing what we are doing. So today, what I can tell you, irrespective of any label or any whatever legal frame, what I do empirically, with my patient today in my department is that we try to identify those patients uh, with a predicted high risk of VOD, for instance, a second allotransplant. Nobody would argue that a relapse refractory AML, second allo, is a patient with a high risk of VOD. A patient where your conditioning regimen is going to include two alkylating agents or three alkylating agents, and we use a lot of post-sign now. So we identify these patients and would rather go 
off-label. I'm not telling you guys to go off-label. I'm careful, but I'm telling you what I am doing. And I'm sure my pediatric colleagues would do the same in some inherited disorders. Maybe Kristen can comment. They usually do prophylaxis. And last but not least, I think, assuming we don't solve soon this debate about prophylaxis, but nothing forbids you from vigilance, very cautious monitoring of the patient, and early initiation of the treatment. No, I think you're exactly right, and you highlighted some very important points just about our, our community in general, is how to, how to address when you have data that supports something on one side and then equally good data that don't. And when the, the criteria are not all of the same, I think it is challenging. So, so I agree. There are some neuroblastoma patients that at my center receive prophylaxis. Most of them don't. But I think what we do, you know, try and interpret that as you think about the individual patient. So I'll say just for our osteopetrosis patients, who you know that risk is so high, so up close to 60%, I think that's a different case than someone who's coming in for a tandem with neuroblastoma. So just trying to weigh it. And I think that just highlights, you know, we all come to these talks and think, well, we all know a lot about VOD, but there's a lot we don't know as well. So trying to, trying to figure that out is really important and, and, and having a plan or identifying. I know for some of our patients, like our HLH patients, I, I'm not necessarily prophylaxing, but I'll get an ultrasound when they come in the door, so I have a baseline. So just things that you can think about if it's not, you know, it's, it's we talk a lot about defibrotide, but obviously VOD is not all about defibrotide. There are lots of things we can do, as you say, with the supportive care that's best for our institutions and in the community. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I have here a couple of easier questions. Uh, does low-dose defibrotide work? Short answer, I don't know. <laughs> the approved dose is 25 milligram per kilo uh, per day. What I know is that increasing the dose is useless because historically we had those finding studies and going to more than 25 milligram per kilo, 40 or 60 milligram per kilo, uh, is not bringing any added value. There is another interesting question about whether COVID-19 infection by itself is a risk factor for VOD. Uh, again, I don't know. It's interesting, but there is some similarities between the pathophysiology of what we see in covid and VOD. And there was a trial uh, in Spain, and I don't know what was the outcome of the trial, uh, which uh, used actually defibrotide uh, to treat uh, uh, the COVID-19 infection. Uh, I think we have a question. Yes, please. Dr. Ho. Hi, Vincent. Hi. So, thank you very much for an excellent presentation. I just have a couple of questions. Uh, first one is in regards to the grading system. Um, so obviously, you know, defibrotize is very expensive. That's what, you know, makes it hard for us to pull the trigger sometimes on our patients, especially if they're very mild disease. Um, so with your grading system, have you been able to retrospectively apply it to historical VOD patients and show us what the survival rate is for the low-risk patients? And you know, if the survival rate is 80%, um, it's no difference than what you showed in your different study. So is it, you know, is it reasonable to give defibrotide in that case? Okay, I, I, I'm not going to debate about the price because in that case, you know, defibrotide is cheaper than CAR T-cells. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. Uh, what I can say when it comes to the EBMT criteria, uh, 
retrospectively, they were validated, for instance, in a large Korean study, more than 250 patients. They were validated in another European uh, series. So although initially uh, the system was, I would say, expert-based and literature-based, today I think we have an accumulating body of evidence which could show the uh, importance and the uh, uh, appropriateness of this mild, moderate, severe, and very severe. So this is why uh, I feel very comfortable advocating for this. And what I mentioned is that what we are doing now for the next few months is to refine a little bit some of these criteria where there is like a sort of a gray zone. But definitely, I think today, we were published in 2016, work started 2014, we're almost 10 years later, I think I couldn't see any publication or someone which could come and say, oh, that doesn't work or uh, it's, it's not logical. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it's justifiable to give it. You know, maybe we need to do a study in these mild cases, whether it's you know, to treat or not to treat. Well, that would be, I think you hear you're advocating, Dr. Ho, I think a very, very, something that I'm very excited about, but it's sometimes difficult, which is like, we like to do sort of preemptive, you know, right. because our trigger would be the mild. It's like, you know, your CMV PCR or EBV PCR. But of course, someone would tell you, oh, but this is not like, you know, a biological test or biomarker, right. but I love this idea. Yeah, no, I mean, at least my next question is, is do you need to give 21 days of treatment in these cases that are fairly mild because, yeah, we, we, I do the same. I treat them as soon as I suspect and I find it. But I always wonder if you really do need to do the full 21 days or whether you can just do seven days or even 12, you know, 14 days of therapy. Well, that's always the question, you know. It's like asking whether how many days of antibiotics we're going to give or not. I think the bigger picture is that you need to treat them long enough because what I have seen in those cases where you have a quick uh, discontinuation, there is a flare of VOD and that's not good. Now, I cannot swear to you whether uh, 18 or uh, 19 is worse than 21 or 20. So it's more about, this is why actually uh, the smartphone will not replace the clinical judgment in my opinion, but. Yeah, I mean, in my setting, I've used, and, you know, I have done it, you know, once all the lab parameters normalize, I give it for one additional week, but that's all very empiric. So <laughs> it'd be nice to have some kind of, at least a series of data to show this. Maybe just one comment about the timing right now. We know that we're over time. There's no one else coming into this room, but we know that you may have places to go. We have a whole lot of great questions that we're going to try to address, so please feel free if you need to leave. No one's going to be offended. So I've been told we can take two more questions. We can take two more questions. Revive, forget what everything I just said. We can take, no, nobody take this will, question and one of these random outstanding questions. Nobody will out of the room, uh, Actually, Christine and Mohammed, this isn't even a question. It's just a statement. Um, Mohammed and Christine, you pointed out about defibrotized use extending beyond VOD and, and in, in uh, COVID. I really feel that defibrotide is a treatment for endothelial injury complications. So right now, there's a trial being run by Jose Moraleda in Spain, uh, by Carmelo Car Carlos Stella in Milan, by Paul Richardson and Christine's group at Dana-Farber, 
and we just published at the University of Michigan, I'm Greg Yannick from the University of Michigan, we just published our use of COVID, I mean, defibrotide for COVID-related ARDS. It's an amazing drug, so I just want to let you know that it is being done at, at many centers, uh, defibrotide for COVID-related ARDS, and it's, we just published it in chest, uh, it's a pretty impressive agent. Thank, no, you. thank you for bringing this, and I think what you said, Chris, sounds like music to my ears because actually it works very well in all of these endothelial yeah, uh, endothelial injury complications. Injuries, yeah. and actually, uh, just to highlight this, for instance, in the Lancet 2012 paper by Corbacioglu, one of the key features, secondary endpoint, was a lower incidence of acute GVHD. There are plenty of case reports in TMA and other endothelial-related complications. You're right. Yeah, and I think Christine Higgum, I think that's mm -hmm. her name, at the UCSF group with Chris Borak just published on defibrotide and TMA, defibrotide profi. So, so there's a lot of use that's getting Absolutely. Maybe just one last one. Um, so here is a question. Uh, and if your question wasn't answered, please feel free to cover the front of the room. We'll, we'll stick around. So the question is about, have you had experience with VOD patients who are actively bleeding? And I think that this is a very, a very good question um, because we know that hemorrhagic VOD is an entity. We know that people with that have poor outcomes. Um, and we know what I try to, to talk with my team about is that VOD can cause bleeding. And then there's always a question of, because of severe liver dysfunction and synthetic dysfunction. So the question is, can you give patients who have severe bleeding defibrotide or not? And that's a clinical judgment in the moment. So if someone has some degree of bleeding at our center, we'll try and support them and give that. But I think you're in a stuck, a difficult spot because you're trying to treat the VOD, the underlying source. Uh, so my mantra is always, if you look at the data from the studies, VOD makes you bleed. I don't personally believe that defibrotide spontaneously makes you bleed outside of that setting. So trying to debunk that has been something that, that I actually feel pretty strongly about. And thrombocytopenia, of course, of course. is a matter of concern because they, are, they have refractoriness to platelet transfusion. So sometimes I agree it's a vicious circle and it's more about trying to gain time and keep the patient, uh, I would say, uh, with supportive care. But there is no universal or single recipe for this situation, but uh, it is very rare as a situation. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you all. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash CUN860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals Incorporated.